This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared US, part of our Discourse Disruptors series. And what we're going to be focusing on are the coming presidential debates. They are coming, sort of, starting September 29th, the first of three. And of course, because everything's different this year, the debates are going to feel different, almost certainly uh, going to be in some fashion remote. Maybe the debaters, the candidates won't even be in the same place. There's only going to be one moderator. Um, We're not going to have a live audience because you can't have that many people in one space in this dangerous time. Also, what we have going on is a conversation simultaneously with, which is focused on maybe we shouldn't have debates. Maybe it's time to wrap up that whole institution and go back to a time of no debates. And when I say go back, did you know that for most of American history, this institution that we know as the debates did not exist, that for most of our history, there were no debates? And did you know that once we started having debates, that in the first series, there was a remote debate. The candidates were not in the same place, and there was no live audience, and there was only one moderator. So maybe things are circling back. There's a lot of history here, and we are interested in that because at Intelligence Squared, we are very interested in history, and we are also very, very interested in debate. So that's what we want to focus on, and we want to focus on, in this case uh, of Discourse Disruptors with an excellent source of information about the past and the present and potentially the future. And that is a gentleman named Newton Minow. And Newton Minow is an old friend of Intelligence Squared U.S., and he's also known as the father of American presidential debates. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But first, let's bring Newton Minow into the conversation. Newt, thank you so much for for joining us. It's it's really a pleasure to be uh, back in communication with you. John, I look forward to it. As you know, I admire your work with the, the Intelligence Squared very, very much. Well, thank you. Can, can I ask before we start everything else, I, I find it interesting that for folks who don't know, you have lived through some very, very disruptive times. And this one in your 90s is it comes at the after a, a long series of other adventures. I mean, you have lived through, I think, 23 presidential elections at this point. You have seen 12 cycles of the debates that we're going to be talking about. Um, you lived through the major disruption called World War II. Uh, you served overseas. You went into politics. Uh, you were an aide to um, Adlai Stevenson, who ran for president as the Democratic nominee twice in the 1950s. So you saw two elections. Then you joined John Kennedy's administration, and you saw the trauma of his assassination. And then you were very close friends with Robert Kennedy, and you saw his assassination and lived through that. And um, and and now this. Um, just just to take a moment, is is this disruption different in, dramatically in kind from all of the others you've seen so far? Well, I lived through all that, but then I had another um, exposure to politics with Obama because um, Michelle worked for our firm and, and Barack came to be a summer associate and they fell in love and uh, so we got... So we had another round of politics with, uh, with, with the Obamas. Well, I had no idea about that. But all throughout, I would say, the last 50 years of this, you have been intersecting with this institution that we call the presidential debates. Um, take us back to 1959, 1960, where, as an aide to uh, Adlai Stevenson, you actually were involved in the idea of pushing forward the idea that there, sh- there, he did not get to take part in that kind of debate, but was interested in it. And was interested because you were suggesting it. You have a well, very, very strong faith in in the idea of technology to be a, a force for good and for communication. And you saw television as this, you were right, <laughs> as this big thing happening in the sixties. Well, it did actually it was in the fifties, and in, in when. In, in the 56 presidential election, 
the incumbent president, uh, President Eisenhower, had a heart attack. And um, there was a big question whether he would be able to run again. And I suggested to Adley that instead of the candidates rushing all over the country and speaking to crowds, that, that now we had television, which reached every home, and that instead of uh, the traditional debate, that there'd be a series of joint appearances or debates between the presidential candidates. Adley considered it, his advisors thought it was a gimmick, and it was, he never suggested it. The Federal Communications Act, when it was originally passed during the New Deal, required equal time for political candidates. The law said, Section 315, if a broadcaster gives or sells time to one candidate, it must give or sell time to the opponent on the same basis. As a result, that was interpreted by the Federal Communications Commission to mean any use of the air by a candidate, including being in a news program. So the broadcasters were pressing to get news programs exempt from the equal time requirement, and they finally succeeded in the late 50s, but debates were not regarded as a news program. And as a result, the broadcasters pressed Congress because they wanted to have debates on television. And there were hearings in the Senate, and Adley was invited to be a witness. And I, as the junior lawyer in the office, was told to draft his testimony. Mm-hmm. And I did and argued, really, that this had to be changed to permit uh, debates. Adley testified, and as a result, I think his testimony was influential. Congress passed a law, which was a very strange law. It said for 1960 only, the presidential election only, the broadcasters would be exempt from the equal time law. The broadcasters jumped at it and arranged the Kennedy-Nixon debate. And that's how people became, for the first time in America, seeing the two candidates for president debate with each other on television. So what I find interesting in that story is that it includes the idea that having to give equal time to all of the candidates which sounds like a good, fair thing, was not seen as a good thing, at least, um, it sounds like, by the television networks and possibly by the two major parties. So, so what about that? Well, today, if you go to the Federal Election Commission and you ask, how many candidates are there in 2020 for President of the United States? If I told you that there were almost 200, would you believe me? I would. Unfortunately, I do know about that. <laughs> well, so you can't have a debate with 200 candidates. So there has to be some line drawn. Uh, and you can argue on very emphatically where it should be drawn. But you can't have a debate with 200 candidates. So let's talk about the drawing of the line. Um, what fundamentally should qualify a candidate for president to be able to get on the debate stage and fundamentally exclude someone else? I think it has to be some signs of some support for a candidate existing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has to, the candidate also has to be constitutionally qualified to run for president, which means he has to be an American citizen born in the United States, and the candidate has to be on enough ballots in enough states so that if he was on enough ballots, he could conceivably win the election. But do you, do you see a chicken and an egg problem here at all in that if somebody doesn't get to be on the stage, then they don't have... The, I mean, that's one of the best platforms for visibility for a candidate. There's no question about get, it. There's no question yeah. about it. And very often in American history, a third party has made a major contribution to, a, to the uh, national discussion of the issues. 
so it's it's there's a dilemma here. But so a line had to be drawn, and the networks in 1960 didn't have to do it, but they just went ahead with the exemption from Congress and had the two-person debate. And uh, after that, I was appointed to the FCC, and I made a terrible mistake, in my opinion, looking back. A broadcaster in Michigan came to the commission and wanted to cover a debate on uh, radio and television for the race for governor of Michigan. The uh, sponsor of the debate was not the broadcaster. It was some press organization was organizing it. And they asked if, if they qualified uh, to be exempt from the equal time law. And the commission and its staff emphatically said that they couldn't be exempt from the equal time law because the 1960 exemption that Congress had passed had expired. Mm-hmm. And also that even when it existed, it didn't include the word debates. And uh, they didn't regard debates as a news event. So I went along with that view, which was, a mis- in my view, a, a big mistake. As a result, any candidate who's leading doesn't want a debate. So in 1964, Lyndon Johnson was the president. He was way, way ahead in the polls. He had no interest in debating with Barry Goldwater, so he told the leaders in Congress, forget about an exemption. I don't want a debate. Mm -hmm. In 1968, Johnson was still president, he didn't. Uh, he took himself out, but he didn't want a debate. Nixon didn't want a debate. He was ahead of the polls, so there was no debate. 1972, Nixon didn't want a debate. There was no exemption, no debate. At this point, several of us who had been involved at the FCC realized the law had to be changed. And we talked to the League of Women Voters, and the League of Women Voters petitioned the Federal Communications Commission to exempt debates provided that the sponsor of the debate was not the broadcaster and the broadcaster had no control of the debate. And the FCC, to its great credit, with her Republican chairman, Dick Wiley, ruled that way. That was challenged in court, but that enabled the League of Women Voters to organize debates in 1976. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to my conversation with Newt Minow. This special broadcast is part of the Discourse Disruptor series from Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Here's more of my recent interview with Newt Minow. I just want to pause briefly at that first debate, 1960. Four debates between Nixon and Kennedy. Um, the, the law had to be changed temporarily to allow that to happen so that there could be only two candidates on the stage and the networks were organizing it. A few things happened then that I just find interesting. One of them is that the third debate didn't actually have the candidates on a stage together in front of a live audience. And that's interesting to me because we're talking about that happening in September between Donald Trump and Joe Biden because of the virus situation. But there's there's precedent then for a remote debate without a live audience and a single moderator. Exactly. Uh, and th- 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 it may be the forerunner of what may happen, we don't know yet, in 2020 with a virtual debate. Why did that happen in back in 1960, do you The recall? candidates were traveling, and they couldn't coordinate their schedules to be in the same place at the same time. And did it change the quality of the debate or the energy or the atmospherics? I don't think so. I saw them all, and I don't think it changed anything. 
And what was the big takeaway from the Kennedy-Nixon debate? Series? Well, the big, the big takeaway was very clear. Nixon was well-known by the American people. He was the vice president. Kennedy was young, uh, was not well-known. The big question was whether the public would get to know him, and if they did get to know him, would they think he could be president? And what he did, in the, particularly in the first debate, was to demonstrate to the American people that he was a grown-up, that he knew what he was talking about, that he had the uh, character and personality which the American people liked. So it established he was way behind at that point. The debate immediately brought him up in the polls. What about the substance of the debate? Was there it, wasn't there wasn't much substance in the, in the debate. The, the, really? the, the very first issue was two little islands off the coast of China, Kimoy and Matsu, that nobody cared about. But that was a, it, it was more of a personality and character test than it was a substantive one. Are you okay with that, or do you want to see a substantive debate? I think you want both, and mm -hmm. uh, I think you you need both. There's also the story that Nixon declined makeup. John Kennedy took a light powdering. And what I found interesting, I'm going to quote from, from your book now that you wrote with Craig LeMay. And your book is called Inside the Presidential Debates. It came out 12 years ago, but I want to say I've just read it. And to anybody listening, it's a great read, first of all. But here's what you and Craig wrote. 2008, neither candidate wanted to admit publicly to using makeup. The use of makeup had already been made a character issue earlier in 1960 when Democrats had charged Nixon with wearing makeup for an appearance on the Jack Parr show. During a primary debate in West Virginia between Kennedy and Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey, Humphrey wore makeup for television and he was criticized for it. I just, I find that so quaint and charming. But that was a real thing that real men didn't wear makeup in those days? Right. Well, you weren't a man if you were, if you were wearing makeup. This was, this was a masculine thing. And Don Hewitt, who was, you know, 60 Minutes and CBS News, always used to tell the story that he offered to help Nixon with, with um, uh, makeup that he looked better, and Nixon rejected it. Well, wow. and it, and it may have it may have made a, a big impact on how history turned out. It sounds like it probably did. It, it, it is. I have to tell you a great Nixon story. At least I think it's a great Nixon story. In 1961, um, Ted Sorensen, the assistant to JFK, and Pete Peterson, who later be, be, became a Secretary of Commerce, and I were all given an award together by the. Junior Chamber of Commerce, and the speaker was former Vice President Nixon. This was in the spring of 61, and it was in California. Nixon was the speaker. It was at lunchtime. He knew Ted Sorensen, so before the lunch, he walked over. Ted and Pete and I were standing together, and he said, Ted, I want to congratulate you on that wonderful inaugural address. It was splendid. And <laughs> Ted Soren said, uh, Mr. Vice President, thank you very much. Uh, and Nixon then said, Ted, I want you to know there were some things in that speech I could have said myself. I wish I could have said them myself. And Ted said, you mean the part about ask not what your country can do? And Nixon said, no, no, no. He said, I mean the part that began, I do solemnly swear. <laughs> So Nixon did have a sense of humor. Well, one more thing I want to touch on about Kennedy-Nixon debates before we move forward, and that is that, uh, again, we live in a time when the debates are seen as uh, normal, uh, um, baked into our political system, almost an institution. But when the idea was proposed in 58, 59, early 60, there were people pushing back against it. There were there were editorials that were con that said this is a terrible idea, and and we had in fact, with the exception of a few here and there radio debates since the 1920s, we had not had debates. It was not part of the American tradition, and there were cautions. There there were people raising red flags. What were they worried about? 
Well, I never understood why they were worried because if you study the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which occurred in the 19th century, they were in the Senate race in Illinois where Lincoln and Douglas had serious debates. I think there were five or six. Uh, there had been a tradition of debates, but somehow we'd gotten away from that in our political process. And I, I felt that particularly when television was invented, where you had a, gave, gave a chance for every voter, every citizen to see the candidate, to hear the candidate, to judge for yourself what kind of a person this was, what kind of an intellect did the candidate have. Not to take advantage of that it seemed to be to be foolish. So what were people scared of? I, I know the New York Times, for example, wrote an editorial or a commentary of some form in which they were saying, you know, these these things will play to the personalities and to gimmicks and we won't really learn what we need to learn from these things. There was a sense that it would be a circus. Well, and of course, in some ways, some of the debates, particularly the primary debates in 2020, have turned into a circus. <laughs> so, so the cautions were not without merit, it sounds like. So you've told us the story of the six, 1960 debates, and then you told us that for the next 16 years, uh, presidents who were incumbent and given the opportunity to debate to debate were able to say no and they did say no whoever so was we went, a, whoever was ahead would say no okay why was that their manager would say what, what do you want are you crazy why, why would you risk your lead in you you may say something or do something and make a mistake so obviously you shouldn't take the chance so 1976 is when the debates, as we know them today, really began to kick in. And by that, I mean that there have been consecutive debates ever since. And um, it, the, the, it was Jimmy Carter um, versus Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford had not been elected to office. He had become president after the resignation of Richard Nixon. He had a very tough campaign. He was something like 32 points behind by the end of the summer weighed down by the legacy of Watergate, in which he had pardoned Richard Nixon. Jimmy Carter was this newcomer from Georgia. Were those factors in why 1976 was the restart of the debates? They were essential factors. What, what, what had happened, I was, uh, I'm a Democrat. I was a delegate to the 1976 convention. And when I came home, I went through the telephone messages there was a message from a woman named Ruth Cluson, who was the president of the League of Women Voters. I didn't know her. I called her back, and she told me what the League was trying to do to organize debates and that they wanted to ask me to help them. Uh, she told me how they were going at it, and I said, I think, first of all, if you want me to help you, we'll have to get a Republican as well. And I suggested a man named Dean Birch, who also had been chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. And I told him what I wanted. And he said, Newt, I can't do it. I'm working for President Ford. I said, well, as long as I've got you on the phone, tell me what President Ford liked to debate. The, the legal and voters are trying to organize it. He said, I'll call you back. He called me back the next day and he said, President Ford would like to debate. And I said, wow. I said, uh, <laughs> I said, an incumbent president wants to debate. I said, tell me why he wants to debate. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, President Ford said to me, I'm 32 points behind. What the hell else am I going to do? <laughs> so President Ford agreed. Then the question was whether to get Carter, who was 32 points ahead. Well, I knew Carter's lawyer, a man named Bob Lipschultz in Atlanta. I called him. He said, I'll call you back. He called me back the next day and he said, Jimmy wants a debate. I said, why? He said, he knows he's 32 points ahead, but he doesn't think the country knows him. So he wants to debate. Well, then each of them put down their conditions and they were identical. They each wanted it not to be a formal debate, but rather to be questions from journalists, a panel of questions. They also wanted... Uh, 
to have three debates and one vice presidential debates, as was the case in 1960. And they also uh, wanted, uh, in addition to that, there'd be no reaction shots by the television cameras, mm -hmm. both of them. And we negotiated it out, and we went ahead. And that was the 1976 debates. Wow. So there are some interesting things that have come up in the description you just gave of that debate. One thing is the League of the participation of the League of Women Voters, and the League of Women Voters is a now hundred-year-old civic organization that was established both to promote the right of women to vote and then the right of women to take part in political and civic action. Very storied, very well-respected organization. As you say, they had been promoting debates on a more regional, local level prior to 1976. But, but it, it also seems that because the law had not been changed, the networks still could not put on their own debates because they had this equal time rule. So the league actually put on the debate, and then the networks were invited to cover, basically as a news event, the debate put on by the league of women voters. So it was a vehicle to get everybody into the into the into the room together. Do I have that right? Was that the main you function? You got it exactly. You got it exactly right. And I, and, and I, I say in the book, I then had a very unpleasant meeting with the broadcasters to invite them to cover the debates and told them what the rules were, including no reaction shots. And they were screaming at me, saying, "You're telling us how to cover the debate." And I said, this is not your debate. This is not the broadcaster's debate. This is the League of Women Voters debate. We are inviting you to cover an event which is not yours. And Dick Saland, who was a friend of mine, who was the head of CBS News, got so mad at me, he got up and walked out. And okay. uh, he later came back. And they, as he left, I said, Dick, if you leave, I said, NBC and ABC will be very happy you left. And um, then he came back and everybody, they had to adjust to the fact that this did not belong to them. It belonged mm -hmm. to an independent sponsor. And that was to meet the legal requirement of yes. that if the networks did it as organizations whose stations were licensed by the FCC, they had to abide by the federal law of exactly. giving equal time to everybody. So this was a, a way, uh, this was a workaround. This it's was really, a way really around the equal time yeah. law. Another couple of things that you brought up were the negotiations. So it's still the case. Why don't we get audience faces in the, in the debate? And why... Why journalists asking the question? And why, I know that the League wanted to just have the, the two candidates debate with each other and talk to each other and question each other and challenge each other, but they've always refused. It's always, I will answer a question from a journalist, and I'm not going to even acknowledge that the other person is over there, which, which is one of my criticisms of the debate as a Intelligence Squared debate moderator, where we try to encourage interaction between our debaters. One of my criticisms is that this is more like a, a set, you know parallel press conferences in a certain sense, where journalists are asking questions to a candidate who answers him. The next thing that happens may be a completely different question to the candidate. Not always. I know that over time that's involved. But um, why why were the candidates so adverse to the idea of just having? head-on-head, head, no intermediary kind of debate from the beginning? That's an excellent question. And the answer is that the candidates' managers and advisors <clears throat> tell them, you don't want to be looking like the bad, tough guy uh, asking tough questions or criticizing your opponent. You want somebody else to do it. You want the journalist to do it. You want to be responding to a journalist's question rather than you being the nasty guy that the public will not like. Yeah, well, how do you feel about it? I, th I think it's wrong. I, w I would like to see the candidates question each other, uh, but I can tell you that their candidate manager will say over my dead body. So things began to change 
between eighty four and eighty eight. So so you were you were a co chairman of the debates sponsored by the League of Women Voters. I think through three to four cycles. Seventy six and, and eighty. Seventy six and eighty. That's true. And then the league ends up dropping out. The league became very upset at their perception that the parties were, I would say, colluding on what the terms were and telling the league how they were going to do it. And the, and the league took great umbrage at that. And simultaneously, a number of organizations had proposed that there be, instead of the league, a kind of organization devoted to to launching these debates, these presidential debates every four years. You were part of that that effort to 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 found an organization and to to compress a lot of history. An organization eventually emerged, and that's the Commission on Presidential Debates. The league dropped out. That was that was a bad period, though, was it not? The it league was a felt very bad hard period. done by. I concluded, and others, that the only way this could get done is if the parties, the two major parties, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, if they, rather than the candidate, would institutionalize the idea of debates. And that's the way it started. Later, they, it had to become nonpartisan. But without the two parties, and fortunately at that time, we had leaders of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party who realized the value of debates, so they organized the what evolved to become the current Commission on Presidential Debates. The, uh, the person who led the League of Women Voters at the time that the League dropped out said this, the League has no intention of becoming an accessory to the hoodwinking of the American public. Is hoodwinking a fair... A fair word, do you think? Well, I was no longer co-chairing it or negotiating, so I wasn't in the negotiations. But I do think there were legitimate complaints by the league and that the parties needed somebody tougher to negotiate than the league was capable of doing. We'll be back with more from Newton Minow in just a moment. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., I'm John Donvan, and if you're just joining us, this special episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. is part of what we call our Discourse Disruptor series. Newt Minow was not afraid to use disruptive technology way back in the 1950s. He shepherded in the very first televised presidential debates, and he has been involved in media and politics ever since. Here's more of our recent conversation. So, so thus is born the Commission on Presidential Debates, something that Again, I think probably probably most listeners don't know very much about. It was formed in a bipartisan crucible, which means that the Republicans and the Democrats agreed to this organization existing and sort of gave birth to it. But it's meant to be nonpartisan and independent. Just how independent really is it of the party organizations and, and the campaigns in particular? I would say it's totally independent of the parties today. In fact, the former president of the League of Women Voters is now the co-chairman of the commission. We've had our been challenged in court constantly by a third party, fourth party, fifth party uh, candidate. And, and we have had a third party candidate who met the criteria of Perot. I forgot what year it was. Yeah, I think it was 92. He qualified, and many analysts today think he was the res- he's the one who elected Clinton. Many people believe that. The, and it was the commission's decision to include a third-party candidate. Nobody since has qualified. Nobody has come close to that since. And it, and it drives crazy the Libertarian Party and the Socialist Party. When I open my email today, I will find... Many, many emails from the libertarians or the prohibitionists or the Green Party, or I could go through many, uh, saying we should be in the debate. In addition to telling them they haven't made the 15%, do you have a response to them that in any way would satisfy their sense of right and wrong, that they can't participate? Uh, No. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I do think of other countries where there are multiple, multiple parties. Take uh, some of the smaller countries in Europe. Uh, take Israel as a very good example of democracy failing because there are so many parties. So you've, you've asserted that the commission is independent of the campaigns and of the parties. Can you give me an example of a time when you asserted that independence to their unhappiness? Well, that would be the year with Perot, clearly. Just having Perot in the debate period. Yes, yes. There was an, uh, another, another year, 2004, when um, the t- President George Bush was running against challenger John Kerry, and they they got together, I understand from your book, and put together a memorandum of understanding, and they had their their you know we want this, we want that, we agree to this, and they gave the commission a deadline. You know this is it, we're in or we're out. And the commission at the time said, "No, we're, sorry, we're not accepting that." Exactly. And they caved. Well, I'll give you another example. And when Obama ran against McCain. There was a big economic crisis in the country, and at the last minute, uh, Senator McCain said he wasn't going to come to the debate, and we had to decide what we were going to do. We, should we have a debate with just one person? What, should we cancel the debate? And I, I remember Senator Alan Simpson, Republican, was on the commission at the time. I was on the commission we decided we had to go ahead. Otherwise, any candidate at any time could simply cancel the debates, and we were not going to do that. So we said we were going ahead, and Senator McCain showed up. The commission, to its credit, has had the courage and the independence to not kowtow to the candidates. So I'd like to get your assessment of whether the debates have been a good thing or not, but I, 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 I want to go through this framework uh, of of hearing people this this time around say, "Let's be done with them," and some of that is coming from supporters of Joe Biden who who are taking the position, as you explained earlier, he seems to be in the lead, and he would only be risking that lead by sharing a screen with Donald Trump. But there's also an argument made by. Um, Elizabeth Drew, and a, f- a few weeks ago in New York Times, she wrote a piece basically saying, let's scrap the presidential debates. And her argument really was that they don't serve a constructive purpose. I'm going to quote a little bit. She could say, one could argue they reward precisely the opposite of what we want in a president. When we were serious about the presidency, we wanted intelligence, thoughtfulness, knowledge, empathy, and to be sure, likability. It should also go without saying dignity. But over time, the debates came to resemble professionally wrestling matches, and more substantive debates were widely panned in the press. Points went to snappy comebacks and one-liners, and witty remarks drew laughs from the audience and got repeated for days and remembered for years. But she found that all of that was lacking in substance, and I think, therefore, in meaningful content, I guess, is the point. What I found interesting in your book is you've heard this argument for 50 years, basically. But there seems to be a, a renewed sense of this critique now, that they're just not worth it. What is your take on that? I think it's because Elizabeth Drew, who I admire very much and respect, and today, another piece in today's New York Times, misunderstand the difference between the presidential debates and the primary debates. The primary debates are, in my opinion, terrible. They um, are run by the broadcasters. They have commercials. They're appealing to the widest possible audience by putting their own stars as the moderators and promoting it that way. They even have people raise their hands to answer a complicated question on an issue. They They are, in my view the cause of Elizabeth Drew and others' criticism and justifiable criticism. Our debates, which are an hour and a half long, which have no commercials, which have no audience interruptions, which are serious and substantive, 
run by moderators like Jim Lehrer, who draw the, the, uh, out the uh, candidates' views, they are, in my view, substantive and important. And I don't think we should be confused with the primary debates. I'm thinking, though, of, you know, as an ABC News correspondent for many years, every four years or so, some correspondent, and a few times it was me, prior to the first debate would be asked, please do a news story about the history of the debates. Oh, and please include, quote, the great debate moments. And I know what moments they were talking about. They were talking about um, one that you mentioned already, where um, Jimmy Carter said that he was consulting his daughter on nuclear policy, one where Gerald Ford mistakenly said that Poland was no longer under Soviet domination, one where President Reagan uh, quipped uh, in response to Jimmy Carter's uh, hitting him on a, well, on a Medicare position, well, there you go again, and the audience clapped and loved it. One, some from the primary debates where, um, you know, Rick Perry saying, oops, and another where, um, well, I, I could go on and on. I, there was no greatness. There's no greatness in any of these, and most of them are mistakes. And, and they're memorable, and they're entertaining, and they may actually tell you something about the candidate, but they weren't great debate moments. And I'm not sure that we've ever seen great debate. And I'm wondering, do you disagree with that? And I'm also wondering, do you think it's prerequisite that a president be a great debater, period? When you said that the ABC asked you to write the article and look and asked you to look for the great moments, that's the trouble with journalism today. Mm -hmm. They're not interested in the substance. They're now, I, I, I have a cousin who was an assistant press secretary uh, for the vice presidential candidate, Dan, Dan Quayle. Quayle. Yep. He was the deputy press secretary for Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle would go around the country and he would compare himself to Jack Kennedy. So the staff kept saying to Dan, don't do that. Don't do that. Because the Republicans, the Democrats will take you apart. So Dan Quayle gets to his vice presidential debate opposite Lloyd Benson. And Dan Quayle gets up and he says, I was older than Jack Kennedy. And he keeps comparing himself to Jack Kennedy. And Benson, who had known that, that, that Dan Quayle had been comparing himself to Kennedy on the trail, was ready for him. And he said, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. And you... Mr. Quayle, or no Jack Kennedy. Well, that became the big thing of the debate. Right. Well, it, sh it, it was a good response, but it shouldn't have been the big thing. The main thing should have been, are you for the war or are you against the war? Mm -hmm. Do you want to raise mm -hmm. taxes or do you want to do this? Do you want to have a better health care system? But that ABC didn't ask you to look for that. They asked you to look for the moments. You're right. You're right. So do you think it's a journalistic filtering problem that the debates are remembered through these gaffes, basically, and one-liners as opposed to... Well, we don't have time to talk that much about journalists today, but it seems to me that what Watergate and Vietnam did was turn a lot of journalists into, instead of being skeptics, which they should be, turn them into cynics. And that's the world price we've paid for what's happened to our country. I want to bring in another much more personal connection to the journalist question. Uh, journalists as moderators. So as I mentioned, I worked for ABC News for more than 30 years. I began moderating the Intelligence Squared debates towards the end of my ABC career. And for folks who may not know, Intelligence Squared debates are structured in a classic style, Oxford style, where there's a single resolution and there's one side, sometimes it's one person or usually two people, and another side. And one side is trying to prove the truth of the statement, and the other side is trying to disprove it. So it's very, very focused. It's got rules of civility. It's got timekeeping, etc. And it was a transition for me to realize that moderating a debate had almost nothing to do with having been a journalist. And my, I turn off my journalism side primarily when I'm moderating a debate. It's a whole different skill set. And 
what I see my role being is to preserve the integrity of the debate, not just to keep it on time, but to keep it on point. To, you know, if a if a if somebody asks a very telling question and, and the question in my judgment is dodged, I will stop the debate and ask the debater to address the question or acknowledge that he's not going to answer it, but but to not allow the dancing around. What I see my colleagues doing who are moderating the presidential debates and the primary debates who are journalists is they're trying to have their moment. They're trying to they're trying to make news. They're trying to create the gaffe. They're trying to create the one-liner. And I'm just, you know, my colleagues would kill me for asking this question, but it's one I'm asking actually sincerely. Is it necessarily the right move to have journalists being the moderators of the presidential debates? The fact that the journalists are is the result of history. It's a result of the candidates, managers, telling their candidates, uh, Mr. Ford and Mr. Carter, that you want a, you want a uh, journalist journalist to be asking the question. That's why. I, I, I would say that the best thing would be to have thoughtful citizens who know the issues as moderators. There was a really interesting incident where, um, again, my colleague and somebody I'm quite fond of, Candy Crowley of CNN, was moderating a debate between um, President Obama and, and Governor, uh, Governor Romney, 2012. And um, she, she stepped into the debate when she felt, I believe it was Romney said something that she felt was in error. And the journalist instinct in her came out right then, and she, she fact-checked him in the moment. She corrected him. She did not do so, in my view, aggressively or rudely, uh, but, but it took people's breath away that she did that. She got a lot of criticism for it. I actually don't think she should have done that. I think that the person who should have challenged Romney was Obama, not the moderator. But again, I'm wondering, do you think that the moderators should ever play that role of fact-checking, since no journalist worth his or her salt wants to have incorrect information going over the airwaves? The instinct is strong, but do you think that the moderator journalist should suppress that? That's a very difficult hard question. I have heard from a lot of people saying that uh, we should have fact-checkers uh, in the debates. And then the argument, of course, is going to be, who are the fact-checkers? And the, I think there's an existential problem of our time, and that is, what is a fact and what is true? <laughs> the, it's hard to believe, but that's a true statement, yes. It's hard to believe, but that's what's happened in our current society. Um, and I believe it's the job of the opponent. The, that, that's why you have a debate. It's, it's so the other side will correct it. What ultimately do you think we, we learn about them now that they're participating according to the rules that are in place? I, I think what we learn more than anything else is what kind of a person is this? Is a, is a person somebody I can trust? Is the person who seems to know, have a set of values that I appreciate? Is the person somebody who uh, I I'm, would like to have making big decisions for me and my family? I think you get a sense of that. Looking ahead to this fall, these debates that are likely to take place under new circumstances that in some ways are old circumstances, uh, virtually or digitally, probably an enormous number of people not watching on television anymore. And, 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 you know, television was your era. Television was, you were a pioneer in a pioneering uh, technology. Now there's a new technology, not even so new anymore, that creates all kinds of other opportunities and possibilities, including the ability to even stage a debate like this for much less cost. Um, what, are you, what are you looking forward to this fall as the Biden-Trump debates unfold in whatever way they do? Well, last night I watched the Democratic Convention for the first time being a virtual event. And it seemed to me that being virtual had some advantages over the traditional conventional debate in that you got to see and hear what a person had to say with less distraction and um, so it, it may be that the 
as you pointed out, the one virtual debate on the Kennedy-Nixon in 1960, uh, as I recall, it didn't have any major uh, deficiency. It may be that that's what will happen this time. We don't know. Newt Minow, you you said a little while ago we're all the result of history, and you have made that point uh, that what we're all going to be experiencing starting on September 29th, when the debates resume, uh, that's the plan anyway, uh, is the result of history. You have shared so much of it and shed so much light. Uh, As a friend of Intelligence Squared, you are so appreciated by us, and I have very much appreciated this opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much, Newt. It's been an honor, John. Thank you. So I really enjoyed that conversation with Newt Minow. I hope you did too. And I hope that you are enjoying all of the debates we're putting out online. And want to let you know we have a fantastic season upcoming. Just check out our website, iq2us.org, to see what we're going to be doing in the next weeks and months. Uh, interestingly, as we intersect and zigzag through presidential debate season, we're going to be putting on our own. As always, we think they're going to be something special. This episode of Intelligence Squared U.S. was recorded on August 18th, 2020. Intelligence Squared is generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. Amy Kraft is Chief of Staff. Shea O'Mara is Director of Editorial. Connor Kerfman is our Creating and Marketing Strategist. Jennifer Zelmer is Senior Researcher. Rob Christensen is our Radio Producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our Chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that you know Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.